I'm Emily. And I'm Hannah. We are best friends and dietitians. We have a goal of challenging nutrition misinformation and fitness trends with an evidence-based approach. Each episode, we will dish up our thoughts about the latest facts on a popular health-related topic. We're the Upbeat Dietitians. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Upbeat Dietitians podcast. Hi, guys. Welcome back. Today, we are so excited. We have our first official guest on the podcast. We are joined today by our good friend, Anna Kitchen, who is also um, a registered dietitian. So we're going to be going over today with Anna, talk about the gluten-free diet, her job experience as a dietitian, how we all met, all that good stuff. Okay, so Anna, I will hand it over to you. Why don't you tell us about what you're doing for work these days, how you became a dietitian, and how you got to know Emily and myself. First of all, thank you for having me as your first official guest. I was really excited to be asked to join you guys. Um, For work, I am a population health analyst for a population health consulting and analytics company. So essentially, I look through data on the back end and inform different clients and employers on opportunities for um, where they can get rid of medical spend waste, as well as different um, population health disorders and diseases that are prevalent among their population and implement different programs that can help their population be healthier. So that's what I do now. Um, but as Hannah and Emily have mentioned before, and that's how we know each other, is um, I went through school with them at Purdue. And I went through the coordinated program with Hannah. We missed Emily dearly during the coordinated <laughs> program. Um, but then I sat for my dietetics exam in June of 2020. And then I actually worked for Lincare for a short time. Um, just wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and so now I ended up where I am now. I interned with this company a few summers. And so I started in October and I've been there ever since. Love it. I think you had taken your exam, like what was it, like a week before me, right? Wasn't it like you, me, and then our good friend, Sophie, as well. We were all kind of like, boom, 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 taking the test like back to back. Yeah, we had cram study sessions. <laughs> we sure did. Oh, thought those days are over. All right. Well, we're going to talk a lot about... Um, actually celiac disease today. So Anna here is a current, what's the word? Not survivor of celiac, but (laughs) (laughs) Anna lives her life with celiac disease. And so we're going to be asking her about her experience and how she kind of navigates that, best practices, that sort of thing. So Anna, will you kind of just explain to us like what celiac disease is and like how you came to become diagnosed with it and all of that? Yeah, so celiac disease is often undiagnosed um, and a lot of people and it can also be hidden with a lot of other diseases and disorders Um, and it's kind of one of those diseases that can be diagnosed either early on in life or really late in life Um, as and some people never even know that they have it because they don't show any whatsoever Um, so there's definitely quite the progression of the disease but I think it's like actually present in a lot of the population that we just don't even 
know. Um, and it's probably even higher because it goes so undiagnosed so often. And how it presents is essentially um, it's genetic in the sense where you inherit a mutated gene, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will get celiac disease. It just is more likely for you to. So then a trigger comes along and like activates that mutated gene and then it, the symptoms start presenting themselves. So that's why there's kind of that progression early on or later on in life. And it's a little bit different than food allergies because um, food allergies have the potential to develop into anaphylaxis, which um, I don't know if you guys have any allergies on that sense, but I know Emily's dealt with some food intolerances. I have. <laughs> I have. Me and milk just don't get along. <laughs> but a food allergy um, could, like I said, go into anaphylaxis where your, your throat and your airways close up. Um, that's the difference with celiac disease. A lot of the times, like it can't go and go all the way into anaphylaxis. But a lot of the same symptoms and um, other things happen. But celiac disease is an autoimmune condition that essentially damages the lining of the small intestine. We have all those little microvilli that increase the surface area. And all those just go, <laughs> and then you have no more, um, <laughs> you have no more surface area for your small intestines to absorb nutrients. Exactly. You kind of also went into our next question about whether or not celiac was a food allergy. So that was a very nice description. We appreciate that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the only difference is the anaphylaxis. Both present and produce an immune response, whereas a food intolerance doesn't present an immune response, but you may have the symptoms. So Anna, we were discussing this previously on our gluten episode but since you are an avid expert in this experience we are wondering exactly what happens when you get quote-unquote glutened and ingest so any type of gluten good i actually have a shirt that says you won't like me if um you won't like me if I eat gluten or if you gluten me or something along those lines. Um, essentially, I become really irritable. Um, but then also, I have a really bloated stomach and a lot of gas that's produced. And so this kind of reminds me, going back to when I was in high school, kind of at my peak of when I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong. I couldn't wear normal pants. I had to wear stretchy pants because my stomach would get so bloated. But now I take these special enzymes. They're called glutenase. So if I get gluten on accident, then I take that and it kind of helps ease the symptoms that, um, that I'm having and experiencing. But I would never want to purposely take that and eat gluten because it still damages my small intestines. How often would you say you do get gluten? It depends. Um, 
It's honestly been a little while since I have. It depends on certain, like if I go out to eat to a restaurant and they're just not careful and they don't understand. Yeah. But obviously I try to limit that at if at all possible. Yeah. Well, that kind of like leads to the next question. So are there like different levels of severity of celiac disease? Like can the symptoms present differently in different people based on, I don't know what factors, I guess, but is that a possibility to be different in every person who has it? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of different symptoms. Um, So some people could have like really bad diarrhea. Some people could experience bad constipation. Um, But so that's like, obviously its own, you know, difference in symptoms. But there's also some people who don't have any like GI symptoms at all. They only have like the more mental emotional symptoms of irritability, depression, headaches, migraines, um, fatigue is a big one too. Um, but I feel like a lot of people experience the bloating, but it's like later on as your intestines start to decline and you you lose even more of that surface area there to absorb nutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when your intestines are pretty much fully gone, um, you can even develop lactose intolerance from that. And so like I, when I was diagnosed, I couldn't have milk for a while. Um, and then I slowly started to introduce it back into my diet. Um, and I was okay with that, but I know some people who like continue to have that lactose intolerance, even after their intestines have healed. There's also like reproductive and fertility issues that happen, but I've heard that that is more common among if you're in, if your intestines aren't healed when you're of childbearing ages. So hopefully I'm in the clear. Fingers crossed. <laughs> but then there's also dermatitis herpetiformis is what it's called. Um, essentially you get like rashes, mainly on like the backs of your arms or your knees. I had them on my arms when I was in like second grade to sixth grade. And then then I started to have more of those GI type symptoms. That's really nerve wracking that it could potentially affect someone so much and they could be diagnosed so late in their life. And at that point, who knows what the damage could be. My fiance's mom wasn't diagnosed until she was in her 50s. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was diagnosed when I was 18. But then like it can also cause failure to thrive in children. And in children, you know, there's like so many different things, Um, feeding issues, even just developmental things that can cause failure to thrive. Um, so it's really difficult to diagnose and really pinpoint what the exact cause is. Right. Cause I didn't realize that symptoms such as fatigue could be present, migraines, like you had said. So I like wonder how often that people have just those symptoms and not so much the GI distress and it does go undiagnosed since you probably don't think of celiac disease when you see a migraine kind of thing. Yeah. A lot of people say that there's like a brain fog too, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if I ever really experienced the brain fog, um, but I know that that can be a problem for some people too. Yeah. Wow. I did not know all that. That's crazy. 
I did not either. I always associate it. I always thought everyone experienced the GI symptoms. I didn't mm-hmm. know that it was even a possibility that you could not experience GI symptoms, but still have that mental inhibition. And I think that's why it goes so underdiagnosed a lot of times because some people experience no symptoms whatsoever, um, which is really scary because they're not absorbing all of the nutrients that they're eating. Um, So then a lot of times they're losing weight and they don't know why. Um, And they're eating just as they were all along, but they just are losing out on absorbing all those nutrients that they're eating. So do you know that often if you're born with it or if it kind of develops over time? You know, there's a lot of mixed opinions. I think, so I think it's one of those things where there's a bunch of different triggers that can cause it for different people. And I'm not sure if everyone's born with that like genetic mutation, because as far as I know, nobody in my family has it. I don't know how I got it. (laughs) It also goes hand in hand with a lot of other um, autoimmune conditions such as type 1 diabetes. And there's a multitude of others, Um, even like some of the different arthritis, 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 arthritis. (laughs) (laughs) So it can, it can like go hand in hand. A lot of people who have type 1 diabetes also have celiac disease and vice versa. So we kind of led into this a little bit, but what is the diagnostic process like for celiac disease? So typically they'll start out with a blood test um, and there's a specific test that they look for for celiac disease um, in the blood. And it's actually like almost 99% accurate, I think is what they say. So you almost never have celiac disease and don't present that blood test as positive. Mine was actually negative. Um, so yeah, of I was that as that small little percentage of um, of people who test negative for for it in the blood. Um, and so we did the blood test, and then I actually went to see a, a GI doctor. Um, just my primary care doctor did the blood testing. I went to see a GI doctor. And they thought that I had IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. And well, that came about, they did a colonoscopy, which I don't know why they did that first. Talk about an 18 year old going in there to get a scope up your butt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, usually wait till you're like in your 50s or 60s, right? Yeah, that was the rest (laughs) of the waiting room. Um, but so they did that and they took biopsies and stuff and they thought that I just had IBS, but they, when they do a colonoscopy, they go up to like just the end of your small intestines. So they took a biopsy there and it presented like high for whatever, um, they were testing for celiac disease. So then they came back and were like, okay, we need to do an endoscopy, which is opposite side of GI yes. tract. But I've heard some people get them both at the same time. I'm like, oh my god, that does not sound comfortable. Sounds like a terrible day at the doctor's you're, office. You're out. They put you out. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's true, but man. Um, 
But so they did an endoscopy because that one goes through your esophagus, through your stomach, and into your small intestines. Um, and the GI doctor, like he took a biopsy, obviously, but then he even just said that he knew I had celiac disease just by looking at my small intestines on the scope. Um, so that tells me they were my intestines were probably pretty flat. So do the intestines kind of like heal after you do start following a gluten-free diet? Do they get better over time? Yeah. So my doctor advised me to get a, another endoscopy about six months after I had followed a gluten-free diet um, to make sure that my intestines had healed um, and know that it wasn't something else. Um, some other things that it could have been was Crohn's disease, which would have been terrible. But so, yeah, they did another endoscopy and my intestines were healed. So awesome! it's amazing so what eating a gluten-free diet can do for you for <laughs> people with celiac disease. Yeah. That's really good that it's cool that it healed or you could have seen that much progress in six months. Yeah. And there's tons of different organizations that are actually trying to like find a cure for it so that you could take, I think it's kind of similar to like a vaccine um and then it doesn't allow your body to attack those cells um and I think they're trying to do the same thing with like type 1 diabetes and that kind of stuff too oh that'd be really cool science man (laughs) we've talked a lot about how it affects your small intestine and how it'll affect the surface area and this will affect nutrient absorption. So what specific nutrients are of concern or common with celiac disease that they've seen deficiencies in? All of them. (laughs) Um, Pretty much all nutrients, um, even even like the big main nutrients, not even just vitamins and minerals, um, protein, even carbohydrates and fat, those that give you the energy that you need, um, you're not absorbing that energy, energy. So it essentially just like goes through your system without doing anything, um, without completing its necessary jobs. So instead of just getting rid of waste, you're actually getting rid of things that your body needs. The amount of food I would eat and like not gain a pound was ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so much is digested in the small intestine. It's like a major part of the digestive process. So when that's not functioning properly, I guess it totally makes sense that there'd be a lot of deficiencies. And then also, um, I was in sports at the time and it kind of, when you do intense exercise, it kind of agitates all of your insides. And so I would experience like really bad cramping and bloating um, when I would exercise. And that was terrible because I was like, what is wrong with me? Why am I, you know, experiencing such bad symptoms um, when I'm exercising? And then also after exercise, I knew I would need to eat I just worked out and burned a ton of energy, but I wouldn't want to eat because I was already in pain. And I knew that the food that I was going to put into me was going to cause me even more pain. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Yeah. 
Well, how about like going out to eat? We kind of touched on this a little bit already, but are there certain places that you do feel comfortable go- comfortable going to? And like, how do you determine if it is going to be a place that probably is safe for you? So it's hard because really no place is a safe place in terms of celiac disease because every place um, there's risk for cross-contamination. Even just going to like um, parties with your friends or like um, going to outdoor gatherings or like barbecues and that kind of stuff. Um, Even the things that you think might be gluten-free sometimes have hidden gluten in them and sauces and that kind of stuff. Um, So it's honestly, it's really hard because I don't want to be difficult one, but two, I kind of have to live my life. Um, And so I see it as most places I can likely find something I can eat on the menu, um, but I'm also always at risk for that cross-contamination. Um, now some places are better than others. Um, I feel a lot more comfortable at the types of places where the chef comes out and talks to you. Mm. Obviously those are the more expensive places, um, that I'm not going to go to eat like every weekend. There's a place that actually just became 100% gluten-free. It's called Bibi Bop. It's like a... <laughs> It's like a Chipotle or Qdoba for like Asian food. So you can get like little like Asian noodle bowls and rice bowls, um, but all their sauces and everything is gluten-free, which is awesome. Cool. That's really cool. And it's delicious. They have purple (laughs) rice. Have you ever heard of purple rice? Ooh, no. Does it taste the same as regular? No, it's delicious. How is it purple? Is it naturally purple? Yeah, it it looks purple. And I've also, like, I don't understand the whole grain principles behind it because I'm guessing it has, like, the whole whole bran and endosperm and all that stuff. But there's also black rice. That's true. I have seen that. But they're, like, chewier and more flavorful than rice. Huh. That's cool. I never heard of that. I think it's a chain. I was just going to ask, like a local thing or a chain? I think it's a chain. Um, There was one that opened locally a little bit ago, Um, but it looks like it is a chain. In Ohio, Indiana, D.C., Maryland, Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, and California. Wow, okay. All over, west west to east, east to west, what's the phrase? I don't know. I always try to pull these cool phrases out and then I just like flop them. It's terrible. Yeah, how'd that go for you? I'm not good at that. You should just stop and use basic vocabulary. (laughs) It's part of the charm of this podcast. Emily and I also kind of already went over this in our episode about gluten-free and celiac and that sort of thing. But we are curious about what you know about the differences between celiac disease and then a gluten intolerance. How do they differ um, and what I guess are the biggest symptoms of them as well. Like, how do you tell if you have one or the other? When you are diagnosed with celiac disease, when you're kind of going through the diagnosis process, you have to continue to eat gluten to be diagnosed with it. Um, so if you don't eat gluten, 
and you go in for an endoscopy, even if you might have celiac disease, it won't show up because your intestines have already started to heal. So a lot of people, even if they might have celiac disease, at the end of the day, they're not officially diagnosed with it because they don't want to continue eating gluten. So that's part of the problem, one. Um, but with the sensitivity, it's there's no immune response. So um, like Emily's issues with dairy, her and dairy don't get along, but it's the same thing with gluten. For me, it kills my small intestines, but if Emily were to eat it, I'm just using this as an example. If Emily were to eat it, she might just have those symptoms. She might have bloating and gas, um, but her intestines won't die off essentially. So that's the major difference. Um, and you can't really like diagnose per se a sensitivity in terms of this. You just have to rule out if they have celiac disease um, or not. And so with the sensitivity, there's no genetic information or anything like that that has been identified. Whereas with celiac disease, most of the people that have celiac disease also have the genetic mutation for it. Yeah. And I also think that with the sensitivity, they only experience the GI symptoms, whereas with celiac disease, like we mentioned before, you can get the brain fog, the um, headaches, and all of those other things that we mentioned. Very interesting. Cool. I feel like that is a common misconception is the differences between those. Yeah. yeah. And then also, I think sometimes if you have a sensitivity, if you diminish like your overall carbohydrate intake, sometimes that helps your symptoms as well. Whereas with celiac disease, you can continue to eat as many carbohydrates as you want, as long as they're gluten-free. Mm -hmm. Carbs for life. Yeah. <laughs> Go carbs. Eat your carbs. Eat your carbs. That should be like our catchphrase. Well, as a person who has to eat gluten-free, what are your thoughts and feelings on people who just go gluten-free for like, say, weight loss, for example? Just don't. Don't do it. Not, no, not a good thing. Um, essentially, what you're doing is people who are going gluten-free for weight loss, at the end of the day, they're pretty much just cutting out what they used to eat. So they used to eat bread. They used to eat, you know, pastas and, you know, all those things, pizzas that are causing their weight gain, probably because they're eating them in extensive quantities. Um, and so when they go gluten-free, they cut all that food out. And obviously they're going to lose weight because they're in a caloric deficit. They're not necessarily on a gluten-free diet for the same purposes that I am. Like, I still eat pizza, I still eat pasta, I still eat bread. They're just using different grains to make those products that I eat. Um, so gluten-free for weight loss, now one, I will say, it has brought more attention to the market and there's been a lot more new products that have come on the market, which is great for people like me um, but at the same time, I feel like if you go out to eat and you say you're gluten-free, they don't understand quite as much in terms of like 
oh, I mean like gluten-free in terms of I can't have a speck of gluten or I'll like blow up and look like a toad. <laughs> a toad. Yes, that's kind of like the same idea as like the keto diet. You know, it works for weight loss because you're cutting out an entire nutrient that you would normally be eating. So it's kind of frustrating. I'm sure, especially for you, someone who actually has to be avoiding that nutrient. Yeah, and if you look at like the nutrient content of gluten-free foods, a lot of times they're actually higher in calories than its non-gluten alternative or its gluten alternative <laughs> because it they fill it with a lot more fat and sugar to make it taste better. Exactly. I really like your point about the restaurant and talking about when you say you're gluten-free because trying to explain when you have celiac disease the severity of the response you can receive from eating gluten is so much different than someone who is just on a gluten-free diet for weight loss so if they're trying to explain that to like a server they might not take it as seriously if everyone suddenly like overall or like these specific people are gluten-free for this reason. And it's really important that there's the education behind what contains gluten and why gluten-free diets are appropriate for people. Yeah, I normally frame it when I go out to eat as I have a gluten allergy or a wheat allergy. Um, that seems to resonate with people a lot better than saying I have celiac disease. Um, for some reason, allergy like clicks in their brain better. Um, now, obviously, it's a little bit different because it's technically not an allergy because I won't produce anaphylaxis, but it will still hurt me. Um, but at the end of the day, I have to think I'm like, well, it won't kill me um, if I am accidentally exposed to it. Now, if I was exposed to shellfish, I have a shellfish allergy, so that would actually kill me. Um, so it's really hard to navigate restaurants a lot of times, too, because they don't put all the ingredients on the menu. Um, so say it's a salad, for instance, they might say, oh, you know, it has um, tomatoes, cucumbers, and carrots. Now, nowhere on the menu does it say it has croutons, so I don't know to ask for no croutons, and then it comes to me with croutons. Now, some places will try to take it back and pick off the croutons. I'm like, no, no, there's still gluten and residue on that salad. I cannot eat that. So you really have to advocate for yourself. That's at first, that's like hard to do. Like when you're like newly diagnosed and you're not used to doing that, you're not very confrontational. So yeah, and I, I was diagnosed right before I went to college. I was diagnosed in like April and I left for college in August. And that was just terrible. Yeah, college presents points. enough issues with figuring out who you are. You don't really need to add on being particular about your food, when even when it's warranted because it's in the best hopes for your health. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm going to look for that menus whenever I go to a restaurant next I'll be like what ingredients are you hiding 
<laughs> what are your secrets? Of, a lot of restaurants do have like, a, especially if it's a chain, not so much if it's like an independent restaurant, but they have like the, not a nutrition facts panel, but like the ingredients and like, it'll say like the food item and then across the top, it'll have all of the allergens. By the way, did you see there's an apparently going to be a ninth top I guess you can't call it eight anymore. Nine allergens. No, is it gluten or no? I think they're adding sesame. Oh. Oh. This just in. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. I didn't realize it was that common. Sesame allergy. They're going to change a lot of posters and handouts then. (laughs) They've been saying top eight for like, since I've known about it. I know. So are we going to have to call it top nine? Man, imagine like being someone who works in allergies day in and day out. That would really throw a a wrench in the works. There we go again with my uh, catchphrases. So Anna, moving on from our fun sesame conversation, how does labeling come into play with celiac disease? We kind of talked about it with menus and how they might not always disclose the entirety of the ingredients included, but is it true that when foods are labeled as gluten-free, they have to be 100% gluten-free? In our last episode, when we were looking up the regulation, we saw somewhere that it has to have less than 40 parts per million, I think. Was that Hannah? I think it's 20. Is that right, Anna? Oh, 20. Yeah. So we were wondering then... Is the reaction with celiac that it has to be less than 20 in a food or is any gluten going to stimulate a response? It's hard. It's really hard question because it's different for everybody. Um, So you were right in saying that it's 20 parts per million to have um, something to be labeled gluten-free. And if somebody labels something as gluten-free and it is not actually like tested and it has more than 20 parts per million, they can be um, penalized by the FDA. Um, it is a regulated, a regulated term in terms of um, food products. Um, now there's no specific labeling um, or, you know, logo that they put on it, it just, they can just say gluten-free. Now, if it isn't gluten-free, then obviously they're penalized for that. But a lot of companies have taken advantage of that because people are using um, a gluten-free diet for weight loss. So they'll slap like gluten-free on broccoli or green beans. And you're like, well, heck yeah, that's gluten-free. It's broccoli or green beans. Like there's no wheat, barley, or rye in green beans or broccoli. Um, Even like chicken sometimes will say like gluten-free. It's like, well, duh. Um, But at the same time, you do have to be careful because um, say, for instance, it's like a prepared or packaged food. It might be... Um, corn, for instance, but it might have some crazy like Asian sauce on it. Um, and sometimes those have hidden gluten in them. They'll use flour um, to thicken them. So then what would you say 
for people who are shopping with celiac disease, what's the best way to ensure that the product doesn't have gluten? Um, so great question. There's actually some different agencies who have created their own gluten-free label. Um, and I think they're actually changing the look of it here pretty soon. Um, but sometimes they'll say like certified gluten-free and, um, it's like a little circle almost. Um, but I think that those can also just have up to 20 parts per million. Now, some things to watch out for is if a food has that, or if a food doesn't even have a gluten-free label, like blatantly stated on it, but you're like, this should be gluten-free. Um, some hidden things to watch out for are soy, um, and then like hydrolyzed wheat and that those kinds of food um, ingredients, but then also modified food starch is another one that can be from either wheat or corn. Um, and I believe it was updated in the FDA guideline or labeling um, guidelines that they have to specify if it is from wheat. Um, so the, those should be okay, but there's like those hidden ingredients that you wouldn't even think about um, that can really harm people. The other thing to really watch out for is alcoholic beverages. Those have no labeling guidelines whatsoever. And the only guide, the only ones that can be penalized if they don't say gluten, or if they say gluten-free and they're not, are the FDA-regulated foods and actually dietary supplements do um, as well. But medications are another thing you really have to watch out for. So interesting. Gluten is just sneaking its way into everything. Well, and then there's like beauty products, toothpaste, all those things too. Um, now they say that like it's okay to use those products. I've heard a lot of mixed opinions about that. I wanted to ask you that actually, if that was a thing, you know, if you're, if you have celiac disease, should you avoid like mascara that has gluten in it? So it just kind of depends on the person, I guess. Well, and the other problem is like those kinds of products, nobody says that they have it in it or not. Um, so it's more of those like specialty companies that make their own lipstick or whatever. Um, and they're like, oh, I didn't put any gluten in here. Um, so those companies will advertise that they're gluten-free, but um, a lot of times you don't know. Another thing is oats um, are a trouble food too because oats are naturally gluten-free, but a lot of times um, different plants that process oats also process other grains, so the oats could be cross-contaminated. Um, so that is one gluten-free, like natural gluten-free grain that you will want to make sure to buy the gluten-free version of so that you don't accidentally get more than that 20 parts per million. Yeah, and gluten-free oatmeal, even though it's like the same exact thing, costs about five times as much. Of course, because they can. I see a lot of times in my practice with patients that if a patient is diagnosed with celiac disease or this is not the same thing, but patients who should follow like a low FODMAP diet, for example. Um, not every doctor, but oftentimes they will just kind of give that diagnosis and send off the handout about how to go gluten-free. 
And when they come to me, I also want to know this question or this answer, but how can we best serve those patients or clients who are coming to us, whether it's as a dietitian or a doctor or nurse practitioner, whatever, how can we best serve and best treat those patients that do have celiac disease? Yeah, and like you said, even when I was diagnosed, they didn't even give me a handout or anything. Um, I, I got nothing. I was sent on my merry way and said, like, good luck. And I think the most important thing is to just educate, educate, educate. One, um, educate the patients just on the importance of it. I think that that will matter a lot, a lot more to the patient. Um if they really understand the importance of it. Um, but then also educate yourself. But I know that there's a lot of different diagnoses and different like medical diets um, or like really just medical ways of eating. I don't like the term diet, <laughs> um, but there's a ton of them. And there are a lot of different like allergy or um, like specialty dietitians or even just like physicians that specialize in certain GI disorders and stuff like that, those would be great tools and people to reach out to if you do have questions. Um, but then also there's tons of resources online. Um, but I do feel like it is a gray area because a lot of times people just spend January away and they're like, good luck. And a lot of times doctors, dietitians don't live the life of someone who has to eat that way. They don't understand all the nuances about it too. Um, there's tons of different things that it's like, oh, well, a dietitian might know what's gluten-free, what's not gluten-free, but they won't know how to navigate with eating out and all of the just random cross-contamination in the home even and so I feel like a specialist or um, something like that would be a great person to turn to in that situation if you're not comfortable um, educating the patient yourself. Yeah, that's a great answer. And Anna sent us a lot of great links. So those of you who are listening who are interested in all this will attach a lot of links about resources on celiac disease. But I feel like that's sadly so common. Like I had someone just this week who had came to me and we're working on weight loss. It's my whole job. So we're working on her weight loss. And she was told by her doctor to follow a low FODMAP diet. And they just gave her a handout and she came to me and she was so frustrated and confused because she's like, all these foods you're saying are okay to eat for weight loss or not okay to eat for this FODMAP diet. So what the heck should I be doing? And so we had to kind of go and break down all the different foods that would cause GI distress and ones that were okay for her weight loss goals and that kind of stuff too. But she was just really frustrated because her doctor had just given her hand out and sent her on her way. Yeah. And it, I would say like even early on, it was really difficult too, because I had no idea what I was doing. It was kind of like trial and error at that point, um, which is terrible because I was still harming my body. Um, and too, there's tons of gluten-free products out there that just taste essentially like cardboard. Um, they're not very palatable. And so I had to go through a lot of random products that just tasted terrible. And I hated it because I would like take a bite and just throw it in the trash and, because it tasted so bad. Um, so I was wasting a ton of money. But in that trial and error, I found a ton of products that I do enjoy. 
Um, and that's the most important part is I want to put food in my body that tastes good and I enjoy. Yeah, that's a good point. See the trial and error thing saying it'll take time to kind of figure out what's going to work best for you. Yeah, and then also you have to kind of go through a phase two because do you make like one dinner for yourself and a different dinner for the rest of your family or do you kind of morph it into, oh, like the rest of the family will eat the gluten-free pasta, but they might have a separate like bread option um, or something along those lines to kind of, you know, keep it normal for them too but then also you don't want to be cooking two different dinners like that's just crazy exactly actually it's kind of the same with my weight loss patients too they're often concerned they have to eat a totally different meal I'm like no you can still eat all the foods you love for weight loss I know it's different with celiac disease you obviously can't have gluten <laughs> but it's the same idea where you can have those foods just monitor your portions and change maybe like little things here and there but no need to have a totally separate meal because that could just be a lot of work and just cause more stress and then too like I felt like I don't know you kind of almost feel isolated and in a sense um if you if especially like in high school and college everyone's like oh we're going out to eat that's the thing to do like well I can't go there like I'll go with you but I can't eat anything and then they're like asking me a million questions like I just can't like and then too, it's difficult to help people understand. They're like, oh, can't you just have a little bit? Like, no, that, that would still damage my small intestine. Can't imagine. Neither. You found a way. This is the life I live. <laughs> so we attach, we're going to attach a link to all the resources Anna recommended, but are there any you'd like to just highlight right now that you would say are the best ones for anyone recently diagnosed with celiac or they've been working with celiac for so long and still haven't figured out something that works for them? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different bloggers. Um, and I honestly, I don't know, I'm not big on the whole blog thing, but I know a lot of people have an Instagram page, but then attach their blog um, to their Instagram page. Um, so I follow a bunch of different people on Instagram. Um, and a, honestly, a lot of people have written books. And so in terms of like a day in the life, living, stuff like that, I feel like I would have really benefited from reading a book of someone who had celiac disease and kind of their experiences. So I would have a better understanding of what I was going to go through. Um, but that's in terms of like, you know, the day-to-day um, and stuff like that. But then I've also found a ton of different, I've also found that it's easy to make recipes gluten-free. Um, there's like gluten-free flour blends now that you can pretty much substitute for regular flour um, in recipes and I found that that's really helpful because I don't want to get rid of all my family recipes. I found that I can just kind of tweak them a little bit and then I can use them, which has been great. Um, and then also Pinterest is awesome. <laughs> um, you can pretty much just search gluten-free on whatever you're trying to look for and somebody will have a recipe out there. But in terms of different like grocery stores, 
that kind of have more gluten-free options than others. Trader Joe's is really good. Um, Aldi has its own like live G-free line. And also May is celiac disease awareness month. So Aldi has more products for gluten-free. I just saw their like sneak preview and they're having cheesecake and egg rolls and I'm pumped. Ooh, that sounds so good. Well, Anna, it has been so great to hear all of your insights on all of this. It is so eye-opening and interesting. Is there anything else you kind of want to talk about um, in terms of your gluten-free lifestyle that you're living? I think that we should touch on the different things that you have to think about in terms of what could cross-contaminate in your own home. Um, So some different things that are tricky are toasters. I have my own gluten-free toaster. Um, Now I know people travel sometimes and obviously you're not going to have a toaster to go, Um, but they do make toaster bags that you can put your bread in so then the bread doesn't actually touch the size of the toaster. Um, So that's a great product. And then some other things that you also should think about are Um, your colanders and stuff like that that you use to drain pasta um, because a lot of times those don't get cleaned very well um, and those little specks of gluten could get in your body and harm you. Um, Also different cutting boards, knives, even pots. Um, It's hard because essentially the whole kitchen should be gluten-free but obviously that is a difficult fine line to kind of jump across and jump on um, because there might be some other people in your household who don't have to eat that way. Um, So you have to compromise a little bit. Um, But then also different things that could cross-contaminate are tongs. If one one tong is one tong, (laughs) one set of tongs is used for pasta and then also the vegetable now the vegetable might be gluten-free on its by itself but if somebody used those tongs to um, get the pasta and then the vegetables then those vegetables are now contaminated Um, so a lot of times if it is like a family style buffet um, that you do have control over I prefer to go first um, so that I can get those foods that are gluten-free Um, and not have to worry about that cross-contamination. There's so many things that you would never think about if you didn't have to live through that. That's crazy. Yeah. You kind of learn as you go, and that's the problem is you, like, it's overwhelming at first, and then you start to think about everything, and you're like, oh, whoa. Um, Another thing to watch out for is sauces. Gluten likes to hide a lot of sauces. Um, You have to get gluten-free soy sauce, for example, um, now, there are some brands that are naturally gluten-free, like Choi, um, but then a lot of others aren't, so you have to get a special one of those. Um, different salad dressings and things like that, gluten likes to hide in those food items to thicken them. And so um, you really have to get extremely good at label reading and kind of know what all these ingredients are, which is difficult in a world that we live in where there's a lot of crazy ingredients that um, are added to foods. Um, So personally, 
when I'm cooking at home, I like to stick to the more whole food ingredients just because I know that those will be safe for me. Man, Emily, this is way more in-depth than our gluten episode. We just basically no, said what I'm, gluten is. And <laughs> no, I'm glad we're doing this. This That's is the really informative. <laughs> Me too. This will be good for the listeners who like don't know what it is or like have a loved one who lives with it or live, live, with, it, live with it themselves. It's You don't know these things until you either know someone who has it or you live with it yourself. It's also crazy expensive. But luckily, since Luke's mom has celiac disease, he like knew um kind of the ins and outs when we started dating and he really I felt like understood um kind of the differences and like what kind of he would have to go through with me in terms of like we can't just go out to eat and do stuff like that no traveling gives me a lot of anxiety because I'm like well where am I going to eat what am I going to eat and there's not a lot of fast food restaurants that have gluten-free food yeah, and you got to eat every darn day, so I can imagine how stressful that would be. Plus, I can't just survive on salads. Yeah, <laughs> terrible. No. So, this episode's bonus question is a very fun one, in my opinion, and it is, what is the best style of French fry? And there are a lot of different styles, and I feel like we probably won't agree I actually don't know either of your answers, so this will be fun. Yeah. But Anna, since you're our guest, you can start off. All right, I'll I'll go ahead and start. Um, I couldn't exactly come up with one favorite style of French fry because let's be real, I like them all. But my personal preference is potato wedges, and I like to make them. You take a potato. You cut it up into like eight wedges. You put it in the oven with a little olive oil and garlic salt or garlic powder and pepper. And you just like roast them for a long time, 45 minutes. Then they come out crispy on the outside and nice and soft on the inside. Delicious. So good. So that's number one. Have you never had a a potato wedge? Oh, I do that all the time with like, like what you just said. I like either put them in the oven or I air fry them. Oh yeah. See, I don't have an air fryer, but at my parents, I did. Not lucky anymore. Emily, you're serious. You've never had a potato wedge? Oh no, I have. Oh, Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, last week she stunned me and said she had, she's not a fan of peanut butter. So I (laughs) no longer know where Emily and I stand in our friendship. I (laughs) I like peanut butter. It's just... I don't eat it a lot. I actually yeah. just had, I just made a peanut sauce for my spring rolls. Ooh, that looked really good, by the oh, way. I thought of you. I was like, look at me. I thought of you. Butter. I was like, oh. <laughs> okay, but yes. Wait, I have the had, other potato. Oh, yeah. What's your other one? Yes. Tell us. Tell us the other potato preference. The other favorite potato form, well, French fry form, is a tater tot, a classic. People might call them potato gems. No, it's a tater tot. Those are I so good too. I didn't they're think especially good in the air fryer. Yeah. So that's really interesting because I always thought tater tots were a different category. But even is, though I'm thinking about it, it's like essentially a French fry. Because it was just, probably called a vegetable in elementary school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. 
Well, what category would it be in? It's not like it's a not sandwich. A I it's feel not... like it would be. <laughs> not a cereal it's not a sandwich it's not what else is there I guess I don't know it's not a fruit I don't I know guess... well I guess like um what would you consider like mashed potatoes that's not a french fry that's just no I, I'm, I'm not just saying like the category oh, I know. I'm agreeing with you I don't know what that would be that would be just like a just starchy, starchy vegetable veg. yeah <laughs> I guess you got to be like fried in some way to become a French fry. And mashed potatoes are not fried, they're just mashed. No. If it was yeah. a fried mashed potato, then yeah, we might have a different discussion. I wonder if you could take a ball of mashed potatoes and like fry it. Well, that kind of what a tater tot is, just in a way smaller form and not quite as mushy. Yeah. Okay, tater tots Emily, are good though. Emily, what is your favorite style of French fry? So my favorite style of french fry is a curly fry. I've never had a curly fry that I did not like. And yeah, I I don't really think there's much else to it. (laughs) (laughs) It's because they're small and crispy. Mm -hmm. And the shape is fun. The shape is fun. I feel like, and let me, I'll explain why, but I feel like you're someone who has a lot of like excitement plays a big role in your food choices. And my example is sprinkles. <laughs> I'm really love sprinkles for those of you who don't know. <laughs> yes, I will be, I can be won over by the appearance of food. Yeah. Okay, well, I agree with all of both of you because there's really no wrong way to eat a potato, but I don't know. My first thought was curly fry because they are really good and they're always seasoned really well, but I'd love like it's just a classic, like a Wendy's style, like not a shoestring, that's way too thin, but just like a regular old French fry. My favorite is probably like a Five Guys kind of French fry that has like mm. the good seasoning on it or a Rally's. Five Guys French fries are delicious. They're so good. And they give you so many too. It's awesome. Yeah, they so- overflow the, the cup into the bag. Amazing. amazing. They do not skimp on their portion sizes and we're here for it. Yeah. What's our catchphrase again about carbs? Carbs are good. What do we say? <laughs> carbs for life. Carbs for life, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised no one said waffle fries. I feel like those are pretty oh, pretty popular. Geez, those are really good, especially from Chick-fil-A, but some yes. greasy. And other times they're too soft. Yeah. That's that true. Was... They're inconsistent. inconsistent. It's hard to get it right when they're like that texture. Or that you gotta shape, have fry consistency. Agreed. <laughs> With the saltiness too. Across each bite. Yes. Saltiness and texture and shape. Uh, Unless you're Emily, she likes crazy shape. Yeah. <laughs> Emily is ruthless. There's no there's no rules. <laughs> I'm unhinged. I'm unhinged. <laughs> it's so interesting how none of us had the same answer. Well, Anna, thank you so, so much for being our guest of honor today. It was a delight to chat about all things gluten with you. Um, what to have you back another time to talk about something other than gluten, one of your other interests, because <laughs> I'm sure you have others than just eating gluten-free. I do have a lot of interests. Yeah. Anna, do you have anything you'd like to plug about yourself? Like, I don't, I know, like, like. Instagram handle. Instagram, like. 
Anything you want to like market yourself for? Nope. Yeah, nothing. Anna's trying to hide from the public. I am. I'm trying to hide from the from the population of crazy people. Um, no. Leave oh, Anna alone. I, what? So leave Anna alone. No, I just like. I don't know. I want to eventually get in the like allergy front, but right now I'm just chilling. I got, I'm trying to plan my wedding and that's where I'm at. Yeah. One day at a time. Yeah. Don't worry. I got my giant thing of carrots right here. <laughs> I'm good to go. What? This should be your next fun fact. What kind of carrots do you like? Like do you like baby ones? carrots? Do you like petite baby carrots? Do you like like the giant carrots? I like the giant carrots and just cut them up. They're sweeter. Yeah, one of the girls I work with is very passionate about hating baby carrots because the other ones are way better. Oh, okay. No, some baby carrots are really fat, just like asparagus. You ever get fat asparagus? It's disgusting. So there's another fun fact about asparagus. If you take the asparagus spear and you plop off the bottom, then it breaks off right where like the nasty part is to where it's too chewy and you don't want to eat that part. What do you mean plop it off? Like, how, how do you, do you pull do it off that easily? You take the asparagus, next time you get asparagus, hold it by like um, the top. Yeah. Middle, but towards the top. And then just pull, like break off the bottom. And it'll break exactly where it wants to. Like, There's some in my fridge right now. I'm going to do that today. There's some in my fridge right now. I'm going to do that today. If you need a tutorial, just um, call me and I'll tell you how to do it. Okay. okay, I will. That's really interesting. I'm full of great facts. Yeah. Well, let's get back on just for like fun facts with Anna. <laughs> That'll be a whole episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, also, by the way, in terms of the fry situation, you can... Um, search for types of french fries and you can get a sticker for like a water bottle or laptop or something that's like all the different types of french fries emily there we go we make that wait that's amazing that's amazing (laughs) the more you know fun facts of anna (laughs) fun facts of anna next segment so thanks for tuning in to today's episode We hope that you guys tune in next Wednesday for another episode with the Upbeat Dietitians. Bye! Bye! Thank you so much for tuning in on this episode of the Upbeat Dietitians with your hosts, Emily Krause and Hannah Thompson. We appreciate you all so much for continuing to support us. In order to support us and sustain the success of this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. If you'd like to provide us feedback for future episodes and guest stars, follow us on Instagram at The Upbeat Dietitians. Lastly, you can show us support by providing a monthly donation using the link at the end of our bio. Once again, thank you so much for listening today and stay tuned next Wednesday for a new episode. Until then, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.